In John chapter 2, we come to the beginning of Jesus's, what we might would say, his earthly ministry, that Jesus is kind of launching out now. Things are beginning. And John, as I mentioned in the very first message, six messages ago in our introduction, is that John uh, has a different approach than uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John's approach is not necessarily a timeline concerning the life of Christ, but John, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a person in there that we've looked at in the first chapter. But the Apostle John, who's the author of this account uh, that we call the book of John, uh, is not uh, the other three Gospels, you could almost say, is like a movie, you know, giving a sweep of the life of Jesus. But the Gospel of John is more like individual snapshots uh, concerning specific events and things in Jesus' life. And so we are able, you know, when you come to a snapshot, uh, you're able to kind of examine the picture and examine a little more detail than you would if you're watching a video. So John helps us do that. And one of the ways that John uh, helps us is he builds this gospel primarily around seven miraculous signs that Jesus did. Now we know that Jesus did more than seven, but he uses these seven as kind of anchors or markers that furthers his goal that he tells us what that goal is at the end of the Gospel of John. In fact, it'll be on your screen in John 20, verse 31. Uh, he tells us why he has written what he has written in previous, the previous uh, 19 or 20 chapters. He said, these things are written so that, so that you may, what? Believe, that you may have confidence, that you would have the assurance of knowing that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And this isn't just a believing as an intellectual pursuit, but by believing that you may have life, eternal life, in His name, through Him. So John, the Apostle John, builds around seven major signs or miracles. He calls them signs. The other Gospel writers call, calls them miracles, but he likes to use the word sign, talking about the same thing. And so in John chapter 2, we see the very first miracle or sign that John brings to the forefront. Now a sign, just like if there is a, a street sign, a sign is intended to give us information. It's intended to direct us. It's to tell us uh, and point to something of where we should go. If you want to take the a certain exit or it's a stop sign, whatever, a sign is intended to convey information or give us direction. So in the same way, John uses that word, and I won't, you know, again, the Greek word for sign, but he likes that word, and it is designed to teach us or instruct us certain things about God. So each one of these Seven signs throughout the Gospel of John are intended to convey or reveal something about the Messiah, about Jesus, about the nature of God, about the purpose of God, about the 
work of God. So that's why they're important to pay attention to. Uh, the best definition of a sign or miracle, and I'll kind of use those interchangeably, is that it is a rare, extraordinary, powerful display of God's power that often signifies some truth or points to some spiritual principle beyond itself. So, so the, the, the miracle isn't the miracle necessarily what it is, but it's saying, what is it pointing us to? What is that sign directing us to? Okay, Getting a good parking place in the front of Publix is not a miracle. It might be providential, helpful, but that is not a miracle. You know, we throw banner around miracle, but these are supernatural uh, events and works that God does, that God is kind of uh, intervening into the human affairs. And so we come upon this first demonstration of this miracle or this sign, this sign that uh, John uses. And this is the first of seven. Now, just kind of for you uh, Bible study nerds uh, out there, this, uh, just point this out because you, you start to pay attention to all these little nuanced things. And so from chapter 2, verse 1, you notice in your Bible it says that the, it says that this is a miracle that was in Cana of Galilee, and it's kind of bookend between a second sign that ends in chapter four, verse forty-six, where the last miracle or the last of these two miracles are also done of Cana and Galilee, and so these are kind of just two little uh, of the first two signs that John wants to highlight, and they're kind of bookend in. Cana, as far as where they took place. So I've broken down this, um, <clears throat> this morning's message into three parts that we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to look at the scene, the sign, and the significance. I want to go through the first two uh, relatively quick and then talk about seven things that I believe are significant uh, concerning this wedding miracle in John chapter Two. The wedding, as I said, number one, the scene is in verses one through two. The scene, a wedding celebration in John 2, one through two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. <coughs> as I said, the wedding was in Cana. Now, to add a little confusion to you, there are actually two towns called Cana. And so determining which is which, one is uh, kind of northeast of Nazareth, uh, Jesus' hometown, and one is a little further north, but uh, I'll let you kind of worry about that later. But the important thing is, is that they were close enough, you had Jesus and you had Mary, the mother of Jesus, that they were there, and I assume there was probably some other family members, and of course Jesus' disciples were also, at least the first five were there as well. And again, we wonder, well, why? So first of all, it had to be relatively close to their hometown of why they were there, and both Canas are relatively close. Uh, and so you wonder, okay, what's, what's the event going on here? Now Mary, it seems as you read the account, uh, maybe these were friends. Maybe they were. Maybe she was kind of the guide or the um, 
the coordinator, if you will, of the, maybe the family that uh, was having the wedding party. Because you, you see, she plays a certain role in uh, when there's a lack of wine, and she's the one that brings the concern. So there's a lot of questions we have in here. But uh, we certainly see that the most important thing is that Jesus was present at the wedding. Jesus is a good person to invite to your wedding. All right? Just a little, that's a freebie. That's not on your notes. All right? Now, weddings in the first century were big deals, much more fanfare than we give them today. Uh, weddings, again, we had, it was a great uh, wedding yesterday, but weddings in the social construct of the day were, uh, were, were much more significant uh, than, than we often attribute to them. Uh, they were celebrated with great fanfare, great cost. Uh, oftentimes the entire village, parents who might be uh, anticipating a wedding in your family, the entire village was often invited. Can you imagine that? That would be a little pricey. Uh, and definitely close friends of the bride and groom were there. Uh, in, the Jew in Jewish uh, thinking, the Bible has a lot, and we won't go into it, but the Bible makes a lot of connection uh, between heaven and the, or the arrival of the Messiah, and it's always compared to a wedding banquet. We'll talk about that a little later. Jesus chose to begin his public ministry, his coming out uh, event, if you will, at this wedding, because this is the first sign of, of seven that John highlights in his gospel. And weddings are more than just private affairs, they are community events. Oftentimes, weddings took place in the evening. There were processions or parades uh, of the family. It was a very grandiose a celebration where everybody wore their finest, brightest clothing. Uh, the first step involved the, brought the groom who would walk with his friends to the home of the bride, and it was inside her home of the bride where the ceremony often took place. And then afterwards, the bride and the groom would walk again in something again of another procession together with their friends, and then they would go to the home of the groom. And it was here that the uh, marriage feast, the banquet, the dinner was held. And in ancient times, the marriage reception uh, would sometimes last as long as a week. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, a week. So this was a big, big deal. The reason I point that out to you is when we come to the dilemma, it hopefully will uh, stand out and why it was a big deal. And so we come to verse 3 and 5. In Houston, we have a problem. What is the problem? When the wine ran out, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. There are two primary drinks, beverages in this first century culture. Water and wine. And so primarily water and wine were the primary uh, drinks that people had available. Now, wine in the first century was often uh, diluted to some degree with water, okay? It is much different than the wine that we have in the, uh, today. Wine uh, was diluted down with water. Wine was fermented grape juice, okay? 
Uh, and in the ancient world, to quench the thirst without inducing drunkenness, uh, and because it was a, a common beverage, they would dilute it oftentimes um, uh, between one-third and one-tenth of its strength, sometimes three or four parts water to one part wine. Due to the climate, refrigeration and, and some of those things were not uh, available, uh, that the grape juice would ferment rather quickly, and uh, obviously, again, through the process, uh, make it alcohol. Uh, the wine purification or water purification process, water wasn't like today. We just take it for granted. You know, in most cases, we drink water and we don't, we don't think anything about it. Now, some places, you know, they have issues in their public watering system, but for the most part, we've been blessed and we have a water purification. And so we just kind of have a a trust that things are purified, and we don't think anything about it. Not the case. So that's why uh, the use of wine and the commonality of it was much more uh, prevalent. But, but again, I want to make sure you understand that the dilution of wine, in order to people could drink it and not, again, be drunk or inebriated, was certainly um, uh, facilitated by the watering down. And so now we have Mary turning to Jesus and says to her, uh, to Jesus, the mother of Jesus, not referred to by name, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, and so you wonder, why did she bring this to him? Well, again, we're just kind of gathering some information here. Uh, Joseph is not present. Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Joseph was the stepfather, the guardian, legal guardian, if you will, um, because, again, Jesus' birth was supernatural through his mother that was a virgin, and the Holy Spirit, as Luke tells us, uh, uh, came upon her, and she was with child. And so Joseph is not here. Naturally, as a mother, and we know that, there were, that Joseph and Mary had uh, other children. There was brothers and sisters that Joseph and Mary had. But in this case, she comes to Jesus more than likely the way oftentimes parents come to their oldest child, their oldest son or daughter for needs in the family or whatnot. We don't find Joseph. The last time that we see Joseph in the scriptures is you remember when uh, Mary and Joseph went to the temple and Jesus would have been about 12 and they're several miles down the road, maybe almost a day, and then they realize, you parents who have a little challenge with your children, let this be of comfort to you. Somebody said, do you got Joseph? I thought you had Joseph. I thought he was with you. You mean, I mean, Jesus. You mean Jesus? You don't have Jesus? I mean, imagine misplacing the Son of God. I mean, really, come on, people, right? Get your act together. Uh, and so where is Jesus? He's back there you know, and uh, he's talking to the religious leaders. But that event, that's the last time we see Joseph mentioned. So the assumption is that somewhere between that period and the time that we see Jesus in his adult ministry is that Joseph had died and that Mary uh, is uh, single. And so she goes to Jesus and, and says... Uh, they're out of wine. Uh, we've got it, you know, kind of with a sense of panic. Now, to run out of wine in this culture, listen, to run out of wine in this culture was a major social faux pas, okay? 
It was a big deal. Now, some of you have had dinners or whatever. We had a great dinner last night, yesterday. And there's always the concern of running out of what? Food. You want to make sure you got enough chicken and potato salad and whatnot. And there are times you don't want to run out of food. Well, in this culture, imagine all the people that are gathering for this wedding festival. The wedding festival could be going on for days and Mary, in a sense of, of grave concern, because of, again, it wasn't at her home, but somehow she's involved in, in the direction of this, uh, to run out of wine would have been a stigma of great shame. And I even read that in some cases, in the wedding parties, that if the responsibility of the wedding and the festivities was laid upon the, uh, uh, the bride's family that if they didn't fulfill their obligation, they could actually be subject to a legal lawsuit. Can you imagine? Of not having enough, you know, wine or whatever it was that they fell short of that. So this was a big deal. You didn't want to be that family. Yeah, they invite you to their Christmas party. Bring your own food, right? You know, uh, but so that's what's going on here. Now look at verse 4, John 1, 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, in verse 5, Do whatever he tells you. Now, when you read that, obviously the first time I've read it, uh, you're kind of like, wow, that, that seems kind of, that seems, go back to verse 4 for me. Uh, you're like, wow, that's kind of rude. Jesus being a little like, woman! Listen, I just, men, FYI, I wouldn't, you know, in our culture, that doesn't, you know, if I referred to Sherry and said, woman, give me another cup of coffee, she <laughs> probably wouldn't be so ready to get me, yeah, I'd be wearing the coffee, all right? <laughs> but listen to it, listen to this. In this, and this again, it is a little more complicated here, so I'm just going to put it out there, but th Jesus was not being disrespectful or being rude. This is kind of a, a way that English is trying to translate a language that in our English comes across a little, uh, little harsh, um, but, but he's not being rude. In fact, if you, again, if you read other places, this, this, is a, uh, this was somewhat of a common way of referring to it. It, it, almost, would, it almost might be saying, uh, lady. Or, or ma'am, or something like that. So it's a little more of a formal, but here's what's going on here. Don't, don't get caught up in the Hebrew idioms of those type of things of the culture. Here's what's going on here. When Jesus says this, remember what I said earlier? This is the coming out event of Jesus beginning his ministry. So when Jesus makes this statement to, Mar to his mother, okay, uh, it is really a phrase that John wants us to see as a phrase that is establishing a degree of separation now between who Jesus was as a son of Mary, and now Jesus is stepping into his mission and his purpose and his role uh, as the Son of God. Not that he wasn't the Son of God before, but the dynamic of the relationship is changing, okay? And that phrase is just kind of a little demarcation to signal that his relationship 
between his mother and who he is and his and who he who's directing him has now changed. Remember, Jesus would say uh, things in uh, throughout the scripture where he said, I can do nothing of my own accord, but I only do that what I see my father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So now Jesus is following the commands and orders or directives, if you will, of his father who sent him. And so, you know, this might be a little awkward to say this, but it's like, uh, uh, Mom, uh, you you're not giving me orders. I'm following a different directive right now. It wasn't being rude. It was just, again, indicating to you that the Jesus we see here now is on a purposeful, directive mission. And when he says, my hour has not yet come, one of the things as you read the gospel is all the way through there, Jesus is always there was a, a, and I don't have the reference here, but there was, I remember a time in which uh, some demons were being cast out. And uh, they were crying out, what do we have to do with, you know, what do you have to do with us, the Son of God, or whatever. And he told them to, to shut up and to, to keep their mouths quiet. And then the Scripture says, because it was not yet his time. He wasn't going to allow some demons to pre-announce uh, his public role. So, in other words, Jesus is always operating on a divine timetable. He's on his schedule, okay? Nothing ever catches him off guard. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's referring to my hour of my revealing my glory, my purpose publicly is not yet. So even as we see the miracle take place, uh, we see that Jesus is certainly behind the miracle, but we see that Jesus is almost behind the scenes in the actual fulfillment of the miracle. Jesus, again, is very cognizant of his timetable by which he is beginning his ministry there. So I just put that out there. He's not being rude. He's not being uh, short and... Uh, uh, but that, that's an essence of what is happening here. All right, that's, that's the scene. All right, that's in just a real short, quick way. That's the scene of what's going on. Notice, secondly, in our, in our outline, the sign. The sign. Real simply, Jesus turned water into wine, verses 6 through 7. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Uh, there's a picture that I'll uh, had here, and this is just a sample of, uh, of an archaeological find uh, they said was near the area of Cana. It wasn't unique, but uh, these type of large uh, type of water, um, uh, type of stone, uh, and there were certainly clay ones, but these are very specific. These were stone water jars, and, uh, and again, it, they could hold quite a bit, uh, 20 to 30 gallons, and that may have been, you know, what, what they looked like or something. Obviously, we don't have an exact, uh, nobody had their iPhone handy that day. Um, so... <clears throat> 
Now, notice in your Bible, and that's where it's good to have your Bible so you can mark things. Uh, you may want to, again, note or mark that these are stone water jars. That's very specific. They're not clay water jars. You think, okay, what's the difference? Well, clay is a very porous compound, isn't it? So stone, if it was clay, over time, what are these, what are these water pot pots used for? That it says John writing, and see, he again, if he was writing to Jews, he wouldn't have to explain things, but he's primarily writing uh, to non-Jews. That's why he gives us an explanation. Stone water jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification. Uh, these were water pots, stone water pots, that wouldn't become contaminated because they were specifically used for the washing of hands, even the washing of feet. Now, I don't think people put their feet in there, but who knows what they did. Uh, but dip water out. But in other words, these had a very functional purpose, and it says the Jewish rite. It wasn't necessarily hygienic purposes, but that there was, a, there was various rituals concerning uh, the washing of hands, but it was more of a symbol of cleansing. And you remember in one, uh, one of the Gospels uh, when Jesus is around some religious leaders, around the Pharisees, and uh, they are critical of the disciples because they did not ceremonially wash their hands. And Jesus used that as a lesson to remind them it's not what goes uh, into a man that corrupts them, but what proceeds out of the heart. Remember that episode? But what are they criticizing? That they didn't ceremonially wash their hands in this religious ritual that they had attributed as something a good Jew should do. So that's what these... They're stone because stone would be less uh, affected, or, or I don't want to say corrosive, but affected because if this is water that is sitting there and used for the washing, uh, stone, again, is, is not porous, but clay would eventually have to be broken and destroyed, and they'd have to get some new ones, and you get the idea, all right? Don't miss this. I'd, I, uh, I'd love to, but don't miss this. And again, I'd mark it in your Bible, swipe it in your phone, and highlight it, whatever you need to do. Just, but notice he tells them, fill it up to the brim, now, Jesus knows what he's going to do, right? Would you agree? Jesus knows what he's going to do. So, the water is going to be transformed into wine. He tells them to take these water pots, these stone water pots, used for the rite of purification. He says, fill them up to the brim. My wife makes fun of me because one of my sons and myself have a habit of filling our glasses and coffee cups too high. And it creates little spills. I could never create a crime because they would see the drip drip of the coffee cup that I just had to get one more little bit in there. You know, I don't know what that's about. But he said, fill it to the brim. Fill it to the top. Now here, here's what I think's what a reason. When this miracle of transformation of water into wine takes place, Jesus is assuring that nobody, there, there would be no accusation 
that somehow, you know, they put something in the, into the water to make it turn. They added some wine. They put something red in there. They did something to tinker with it by putting and filling the water up to the very top made that impossible to ensure that nobody would accuse him of sleight of hand or trickery that he, you know, he did something to kind of make it look like it was turned into wine. You know what that reminded me of? In 2 Kings 18, you remember the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. And Elijah at Mount Carmel, that was the big showdown uh, where he uh, challenged the prophets of Baal that if your God is, is the real God, uh, let him speak by fire. If Yahweh is the true God, he will speak by fire. Whoever answers and speaks by fire, uh, that will be who we will worship. And you remember that whole event there, and if you haven't read it, 2 Kings 18. But do you remember when Elijah went up to the altar and began to prepare the wood, what did he have them do? He had it drenched time after time in water. Why? He had it soaked in water. I don't know about you, but lighting wet wood is hard. What was he doing? He was doing a little bit and saying that the assurance, because he had confidence that God, Yahweh, was going to speak by fire, and the Bible says it lapped up the water. Read it. Why? Because there would be no accusation that he did some little sleight of hand by the altar to cause it to catch a spark and catch a fire. What was he doing? He was heaping impossibilities, humanly speaking, to demonstrate the possibility of and the, the extravagance of how God would be demonstrated in that miracle there. So don't miss that, filling it up to the brim. What a, what a, what a just a little, little side thing there. Verse 8, and here's, 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 the, here's what's going on here. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And again, Jesus, again, it's not his time. It's not his hour. He's kind of in the background, but he's directing the servants. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The implication is that when they draw some out, it is still water. They didn't, there's no expression of like, whoa, what is this? Okay, take some water to the master of the feast. So they took it, verse 9. But it was when the master of the feast, what did he do? Tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, they knew where it came from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk it freely, then the poor wine. What did they do? They'd bring out the good stuff, the good Pinot Noir stuff in the beginning, and then once people had a little much, then that's when they bring the Mogan David out, or the Ripple, or whatever it is, right? Why? Because they're pallid, and they're a little more, oh, whatever, right? That was, he says, but you, you bring the good stuff out last. Now, there's a great picture there that we want to capture but you have brought the good wine. You have kept the good wine until now. Just a little side event, uh, a little side note there is verse 11. Don't let this slip by you. Verse 11, 
John tells us this is what? The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, really, I think this wasn't because what Jesus said, this wasn't, it wasn't his time. It wasn't, in other words, Jesus is still building his core team. We call them the disciples. He was not yet ready to reveal his identity and his glory publicly yet. So what does John say? The miracle benefited belief in who? The disciples. See? That they had assurance and were gaining assurance and confidence that this is the Son of God. But notice what it says. This is the first of his signs. Every once in a while, uh, you'll see uh, or read something. It seems around Easter or Christmas, A&E or the Discovery Channel or, you know, whatever. They just, they kind of put out some of these uh, documentaries and it'll be the lost books of the Bible. Or, you know, and some of these uh, apocryphal, what it means is not, they're not historically accurate and have never been received by the church. But some of these, like for example, what is called the Gnostic Gospel, the Gospel according to Thomas. And that it supposedly had accounts of Jesus, stories of Jesus being a little boy, and accounts of him taking mud and turning him into little birds. All these little you know, that just doesn't even ring true. Now, we know through the accuracy of the, of the scriptures that Jesus did not perform any signs or miracles because what does the scripture clearly tell us in verse 11? That this was the what? The first. So he's not turning little mud pies into little hummingbirds. He's not doing little tricks, you know, as a kid or whatever. All of that was just a lot of baloney and made up, so don't get, don't get enamored or caught. That's, again, that's just a little freebie there, that this is the first or the beginning of miracles. Now, one of the things I mentioned in the Gospel of John when we did an introduction is that John, again, he's providing us snapshots into the life of Jesus. And these snapshots allow us to kind of zoom in a little bit, to kind of look at a little more detail of what's going on here. And so I want you to note with me seven truths that this miracle reveals. Some things that I think that, as for me in studying, that when you read about the miracle of the water to wine, you're just kind of like, oh yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. What, Jesus turned water into wine. But I think uh, these seven, and there's... Actually, a few more, but again, seven is a great number. Uh, and so I believe that this, this will enhance your appreciation of the significance of this sign or miracle in John chapter 2. Seven truths uh, this miracle reveals. And these are, again, places on your uh, listener guide. They're just simple one words. Uh, that uh, you can follow along that will be on the screen. Number one is the word celebration. Celebration. Don't miss the most obvious thing here is that Jesus attended a party. He attended a celebration. Jesus was not some 
recluse hiding out in a cave somewhere. He was at one of the central community life events that was a festive occasion. Jesus was present. And you don't see Jesus kind of just standing off in the, you know, a corner somewhere, you know, giving some little little wise principles, whatever kind of, you know, those depictions. That's why many of you have seen The Chosen, why uh, we love it, because it has such a realistic feel to it. Do you know what I'm talking about, The Chosen series? All right, three of you do, okay? Uh, but, you know, some of the old stuff that some of us grew up on uh, were, was Max von Sydow playing Jesus in The Greatest Story Ever Told. And the Jesus portrayed in those, one, they were always white, white as snow, uh, which is odd in Middle Eastern culture, okay? Blonde hair, and, you know, looked like he came from California. That was always odd. But that was the world time we lived in. And they all had British accents, one that I remember of the life of Jesus, they all sounded, if you closed your eyes, you thought you were listening to the Beatles talk. You know, they had that Liverpool accent going on there. So the Chosen series, we don't know what that is, Google it. Uh, and it really is just a wonderful uh, adaptation and, uh, and concerning the life of Christ. But you have Jesus not as just some odd, weird, separated lack of personality, you have somebody who's very much engaged in life. What did John 1 tell us? He came and pitched his tent among us. He lived among us. He walked among us. And there's no just coincidence or happenstance that the first event that Jesus begins in launching his ministry is not a funeral. It's what? It's a wedding. It's a celebration. Why? Because the entrance and coming of Messiah is reason to celebrate. Don't miss that. Secondly, is the word fulfillment. Is the word fulfillment. Seven, as we mentioned, the seven signs in the Gospel of John, seven throughout the Bible is a number of completion, okay? It is a whole, in the, in the Hebrew, it's a number of fulfillment, completion. Seven days, the Lord uh, completed creation on what? On the, I mean, He finished on the sixth day, but seven was the capstone of the Sabbath, the seven-day creation. Seven, all throughout, is pictured as a complete number. But there were six, what? Stone water pots. Is that what your Bible says? There were six. Now, six we know. Numbers, again, have uh, different uh, imagery and pictures. Six is a number of man. In Revelation 13, 18, the identity of the Antichrist will be known as what? As, as a mark, 666. That's a, that's a you know, kind of a, a triple identity of of his, of his satanic origin. So these six water, stone water jars are there. And Jesus does what in, with these six? These six water jars that I believe that one of the things that this miracle does is it shows the fulfillment because these six stone water jars 
are showing the old covenant that was incomplete apart from Jesus. What are these stone water jars? Why are they there? They are, they are for the old, the old covenant Jewish ritual of purification. But we know there was no purification apart from Christ, was there? These stone water pots were there, and yet Jesus transforms them in this miracle of filling them up with the water and it turning to wine. You remember in John 1.17, Jesus or John begins his letter by reminding us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through what? Jesus Christ. These six stone purification water pots represent the old system, the inadequacy of the old covenant. Don't miss that. Represents the old inadequate system. Interestingly, Moses' first miracle, his first miracle, was a plague of turning water into blood. The new Moses, Jesus, did what? Turn water into wine. One was judgment, but we see grace and truth in Jesus' miracle of now entering and turning the water into wine, a symbol of joy and grace. One writer says this, William Barclay. He says, the six stone water pots stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of grace. Third is the word transformation. Water was transformed into wine. The miracle shows the transformation of what Jesus' power can do to a life. He can change it from something common to something supernatural, something unique, something different. Isn't that what Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. You see, Jesus has not come to rehabilitate and reform the old. He has come to bring transformation. It wasn't just sweet water. God can make sweet water. Remember in the wilderness? The bitter waters he made sweet, that miracle of Moses. But what does he do? He doesn't just make it sweet and reform it. What does he do? He completely transforms the very uh, chemical elements of the water into wine. His hour that has not yet come points to the purification that can only come through the blood of Christ. The fourth is really simple. It's the word obedience. Mary, in verse, chapter 2, verse 5, gives some great, great advice. You'll have to look in your Bible. But Mary said something really profound that uh, 
you would do well to, to always do. She says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Before Nike said, just do it, Mary, she should get some rights or something for that. But she says, whatever, he told the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. What does that also tell you? That's a little different than Roman Catholic tradition that wants to put Mary on par with Jesus. Certainly Mary had a unique role. But what is she saying? She's submitting his authority over anything that she would have. Whatever he says, you, you do it. Okay? So obedience, obedience, just do it. Fifthly, and this is really, really important, is the word joy. Now, we talked a little bit about wine, but in the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. Wine is a symbol of joy. And certainly, Jesus' presence, wherever he was, whether he has a, at a wedding or just among his disciples and friends, was a joy to be around. Jesus, if we could say it this way without being disrespectful, he was always the life of the party. He was always the life of of, of what is happening there, and his very life is meant to bring the overwhelming joy to his followers. Now, each jar, going back to those, or just listen, go back, think about those jars, they each had a capacity, the Bible says, of at least 20 gallons. That's a lot, that's a lot of wine. Six Water pots at 20 gallons, that's 120 gallons of wine. What is it demonstrating? Calm down. What is it, what is it demonstrating? That Jesus brings always abundance and supply beyond what you can ask or think. Wine is a symbol in the scriptures of joy. And you know, you see this even later on when we look, when we'll come to John chapter 6. You remember in the feeding of the 5,000? There was so much from the few fish and the little, and the bread, the kids' happy meal that he brought to Jesus. It said they had so much abundance left over. They filled the baskets of all the fragments from the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus always gives and provides above and beyond. And again, whether that, again, I'm not just talking about materialism, but I'm talking about even in the sense of, of our relationship and our salvation, that the joy that Christ brings and the salvation that we have, He didn't, he didn't just come, He just didn't fulfill three quarters of the, of the cross he completed it all. That's why anything that would add to the work of Christ is heresy. It, it is an affront to the very gospel itself. He not only supplies, but he supplies above and beyond. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. Number six, serving. This miracle teaches us something about these servants. You know, they're kind of the unsung people in this event here. Notice the water turned into wine involved the servants 
who, if I could use the word, cooperated with Jesus. Now, we know, don't we? We know that Jesus could have done this easily without any help. Are we, we, we get that, right? He didn't need to involve anybody. He didn't even need to go to the wedding. But he was there, and he utilized these servants. And what did they do? If I could use the word, they obeyed cooperated with Jesus in his word. They did what Mary said. Whatever he says to do, do it. And the miracle also is an indicator of what God invites us to be a part of, his agenda. If you look at some of the miracles throughout the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000, what did he do? He used what? His disciples to help distribute and, and in the provision of the feeding of the 5,000. The healing of the man that was born blind. The raising of Lazarus. It, there's always this involvement. And those that are, remember on Wednesday nights and are experiencing God's study, what are the first two principles of the experiencing God? God always initiates relationship. And the third experiencing God principle that we've learned on Wednesday night is that God invites us into become a part of His agenda. Jesus invites, if you will, he includes these servants to be part of the miracle that's taking place. When we're serving and cooperating, if you will, in serving in the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God with Jesus, what are we doing? We are part of the miraculous work that God is doing. Just like the waiters at this wedding feast in Cana, if we'll just pour, what were they to do? Just pour. <laughs> Just pour out the grace, forgiveness, and the love of God. Let him worry about the transformation. Let him worry about the miracle. What do we do as his servants? Just pour. That's all these waiters had to do. And watch him display his glory. The last thing that I think we can see in this miracle is a sense of anticipation. There's many scriptures and, that speaks about the coming of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it pictures, one of the things the Bible does quite significantly, is it presents the coming of Messiah, the future entrance of the glorious messianic kingdom, to that of a wedding or more specifically that of a marriage banquet, a wedding banquet. The Bible ends, in the book of Revelation, ends with a wedding. Ends with this marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are invited to what? To the marriage supper of the Lamb. In chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 2 through 3, John said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, notice the language, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their 